given the conditions of the day. And also given the conditions of the day, we will sort of not actually begin now, but wait another 10 or 15 minutes uh, to start simply to give people who are trying to get here some time to get here. But the question of when it actually starts or started is a kind of interesting one in the first place. Uh, and if you try to trace it back, when, when, when did this evening start? Uh, with your intention to come, with your girding yourself together to get out there and try to make it here, with your arrival, with my beginning to talk, with your taking your seat, with somebody having to say, oh, now it's started. So um, clearly it's an ongoing and unfolding eventuality. And um, we can relate to it in a number of ways. I had in mind uh, that we would sit anyway for a while. <laughs> so we don't have to think of it as waiting for stragglers, but just here we are. So if you care to, you can drop in on yourself and um, And maybe I'll give a little guidance as we go. But it'll be minimal. But seeing if you can just establish yourself in a posture that feels comfortable to you and that um, in some way or other radiates a kind of graciousness for the opportunity to really be able to gather tonight and for the opportunity of having a body that's in good enough shape to get you here and that can sit and stand and, and walk if you can walk. And just allowing the uh, feeling tone of the room to uh, resonate with the feeling tone of your body. Resting in a kind of spaciousness that recognize, recognizes sounds without having to be carried off by them or recognizes being carried off by them if that's what arises. The resting for a moment or two in, in the hearing, the hearing of just what's here to be heard, 
in this moment. And this moment. And this moment. Come up here. Resting in the awareness itself. Rather than being carried away by thoughts about. In the silence inside and underneath sounds and the spaces between sounds. So there's no sense in which we are waiting for anything. But we are attending to the unfolding of this moment as it presents itself to us through really all our sense doors. And as we offer ourselves to it, give ourselves over to attending. With a certain tenderness, that is not about getting anywhere or having a certain kind of feeling or experience. It's simply resting in, a, in an open and spacious wakefulness that recognizes what is in this or any moment presenting itself. Can you hear me at the back? Please let me know if at any point my voice drops and you can't hear, just sing out louder. <laughs> Some of you want it louder? Okay, thank you. Were you able to hear what I said up to this point? <laughs> How would you know? Maybe uh, allowing the field of your awareness to expand beyond hearing to include uh, 
the awareness of the breath moving in and out of your body. Just allowing awareness to embrace what we call breathing at the level of bare sensation, the actual sensory experience of things moving in the body that are associated with the breath. And if you care to, you can invite the field of awareness to include not only the breath and sounds, but a sense of the body as a whole sitting here. The whole of the body, including the envelope of the skin, and uh, your bones and muscles and nerves and joints. And your sensory organs just allowing awareness to embrace it all. And resting in this embrace with no agenda. And welcome to those of you who have recently come in, just joining the stillness and the silence. Nothing much is happening and we're attending to that nothing much, which is actually pretty much everything. In fact, we're coming to our senses, attending to all of the various ways in which we can know what is actually unfolding in the outer landscape in which we find ourselves in and in the interior landscape of our life. 
If you care to, you can allow, you can experiment with allowing the field of awareness to just expand out beyond the body. and become just huge, like the sky. Embracing anything and everything, expected or unexpected, pleasant or unpleasant or neutral that arises in the force field, so to speak, of awareness. That recognizes instantly the arising of a, a thought or a sensation in the body or a sound and knows it in a, before thinking can even set in, knows it non-conceptually. And just resting in awareness itself. as if your life depended on it, but without any straining, striving, forcing, fearing, without any agenda whatsoever other than to simply be where you already are with things in this moment, in your life, in the world, just exactly as they are. Without either struggling with that, pushing it away, denying it, creating stories about it or pursuing it if it, you find it or some element of it compelling, attractive, interesting, engaging, just resting in awareness, in the spaciousness of your own heart. Again, as, as if your life actually depended on it. Moment by moment, by moment, by moment. and checking to see from time to time if it's not obvious to you, 
whether this awareness of your own heart and mind is in fact spacious enough, big enough, compassionate enough, tender enough to hold whatever anguish may be here. whatever grief. Whatever fear. Whatever sadness. Whatever longing. Whatever joy. May be a temporary resident of your heart and your life in this moment. Just checking. And resting. It's not a checking by thought. Just resting in awareness and seeing, sensing, feeling, knowing. Breathing. In this moment, noticing the quality of your attention. the measure of it. I don't know when I'll stop welcoming you, 
welcoming you, but once again, welcome. Um, knowing how easy it is to not go someplace when the conditions don't seem completely congenial, I really want to bow to you, each and every one of you for whatever it took to get here. Um, and I never cease to be amazed at the motive force that brings us together on occasions like this. And it feels hugely mysterious to me and very, very wonderful. And, um, it has to, in some way, be mm, an expression of love for something. And I wonder what that something is. I can't really see that many of you because I'm not high enough. <laughs> you know, I wonder if I could get a step back and So I'll be further away, but uh, but I'd I'd rather see you. I think. You know, so. uh, thank you. How many of you have a regular meditation practice? Many of you haven't, <laughs> I'm not defining the terms, but an irregular meditation practice. How many of you never meditated in your life? Or you think you've never meditated in your life? This can't possibly be true. Um, welcome to one and all. Um, this talk is called Coming to Our Senses and uh, living life as if it really mattered. And I don't know whether you've noticed, but there's a way in which we, you, we can move through life and kind of see things, but also not. The quality of our seeing can be very... Um, unreliable. We can hear things and sometimes not. And sometimes hear things that aren't there and then not hear things that are there, although it's hitting our eardrums. I noticed that even with my dog, by the way. I noticed we have um, a dog that we don't let just go out and roam around the neighborhood. So if we're not taking her for walks, she basically has to either stay in the yard, which is enclosed, or stay in the, in the house. But she's 
being an extremely intelligent being. Uh, the screen door is such that it makes a certain kind of very subtle noise when it latches, when it closes, and it's on a kind of a spring. But if you don't, it, but it will also sometimes not latch. And when it doesn't latch, then there's no sound of its latching. And she hears that no sound and will go out. She knows that she can go out because she hasn't heard something. I find that quite interesting, that not hearing something tells you a lot under certain, some circumstances. And uh, it tells you a lot without a lot of thinking. It's just kind of a feeling, a knowing. And what I want to emphasize is that there's a there are so many different ways in which we interface with and touch and know the world that are non-conceptual, but that we just don't credit or even uh, or honor. That is part of our repertoire of just being human, being alive, that you don't have to go to the university to get a degree in or get better at it. Um, do you know the word proprioception? The body has a way of... The, the, the proprioception is a fancy word for the fact that the body knows where it is in space. So... Um, and um, if you know the, the writings of Oliver Sacks, he wrote a book once called uh, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. And all of these stories are actually true case reports about people with various kinds of neurological uh, uh, disturbances of one kind or another. And one story in that book is about a woman who it was a terrifying story about who was just given a drug for some routine gallbladder surgery, and and uh, and as a result of being given that drug, somehow or other it wiped out a particular set of neurons in her nervous system that told her that she had a body. This is extremely rare, and. What happened was that she then didn't know where her body or parts of her body were unless she was looking at them. Now, why don't you just close your eyes for a moment and see if you know where your hands are. Can you put your mind in your hands? Can you feel the sensations in the fingers, in the thumbs, in the backs of the hands, in the palms, in the wrists? Move it slightly, hold it up just a tad, even while you have your eyes closed. 
can you feel where it is? And if you decide to move it, can you feel where it moves to? Can you move it back and forth a little bit in the air as if it was, as if you were underwater and you were sort of streaming it through the fluid? Can you feel your hands? That's proprioception. If you, if I pick up this bottle and bring it up to my lips, it never winds up at my ear. When I'm two or one, it might wind up all over the place because we're kind of just learning how to get it all coordinated between the nervous system and the and the eyes and and the uh, muscles, but. Once we have it, you know, when you need to find the mouth, you find the mouth right away. You know where the mouth is. But she actually had to see the hand and experiment with getting it up to where she could actually feel it. And she lost all sense of the air around the body, like she could have the, the only sense of time that she could have a sense of being in a body was driving in a convertible. And she would have a very, very slight feeling of caress or of the air on the skin at high speed. So uh, it's just one example of this incredible repertoire of capacities that we have for knowing that we, as a rule, don't pay any attention to. Even seeing, you know, I mean, we hardly ever appreciate the fact that we can see, the fact that we can hear. And meditation practice is actually, when you think about it, uh, the, the Buddhists like to say, or at least I've heard some Buddhists say, quoting the Buddha, that there are only six things happening at any one time. Have you heard that one? I thought that was a very interesting way to put it. There are only six things happening at any one time. It kind of simplifies our... Uh, assignment, so to speak, for this lifetime. If there are at any one time only six things happening, maybe we could probably, maybe if we really worked at it, be in touch with it, maybe three of them or four of them, maybe all six. What are they? Well, there's seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, hearing, and then the sixth would be this non-conceptual knowing, the mind's the mind as a sense organ. And the Buddhists consider the mind to be a sixth sense. This, this non-conceptual quality of mind that already knows. And then, of course, there's thinking, too. But I'm not so much pointing at thinking, but we can know that we're thinking. And that knowing, that awareness, can then tuned to thinking and feeling and to all sorts of other activities of interpretation 
and, uh, you know, sort of memory and anticipation and all of the things that we get caught up and carried away with, but that are also, like, we wouldn't want to lose any of those functions any more than we'd want to lose proprioception. But the capacity for it to all be held in awareness is how we actually know anything about the interior world, the interior landscape of our own being, and navigating effectively with this apparatus in a world that is coextensive with the actual physicality of our, the clay of our body. I don't know about you, but it's pretty amazing to me. I never, ever get tired of it. But sometimes I forget it, and I just kind of lose track of it because I just get busy, carried away, and off here or off there. Or things unfold that um, I'm not particularly happy about. And then I can get caught up in wanting them to be different. Things, if only things were different, then everything would be okay. And then realizing that that is a particular way to filter experience that may actually keep me from understanding what's actually going on because I need it to be a certain way, and that kind of like the needing part of it in a certain way filters or obscures other dimensions of it that I may be unprepared to see or feel or sense or taste or touch or know because I'm actually insisting that the world rearrange itself so that I can have it the way I want it. So I want to ask you a question, and I need your help on this one. Am I alone in this? <laughs> Have that, has that ever happened to you? That you've noticed that in some way or other you, you get in your own way, or uh, a particular kind of angle on things prevents us from seeing things in another way? Often it's, very, it's compounded when there are two people involved. I don't know if you've noticed, but it's so amazing that two people can be so absolutely diametrically opposed and both completely convinced they're absolutely right, completely in touch with the truth of it. Have you ever, I don't, not talking theoretically, I'm talking like the actual physicality of it. Have you ever been in that situation where you just knew the other person was wrong and and it wasn't a dispassionate knowing, you you like, like really, uh, incensed if, or inflamed around it. Raise your hand if you've had that experience. <laughs> and it's really interesting if we are to come to our senses. That doesn't just happen uh, with, say, two individuals. It can happen with countries. Speaking of coming to our senses, it might be possible for us to do it as a society, as a country to wake up, to come to our senses, to understand things in a larger way from the way we sometimes think that we're understanding them. 
But of course, if we get caught up in, well, liking and disliking and they're wrong and I'm right, how is that different from the couple just having a big argument because they see it one way and you see it another way? It's just like very often, like, nobody's right. Because there's a certain way in which we're insisting that it has to be a certain way, so we're actually not open to the fact that it may be the way it actually is, and it's much more complex and nuanced and, and subtle than we think, and then we're looking at glasses that, through lenses, through glasses that only filter the story that you want to see. You read the New York Times that way, and you only filter you know, it the way you want to see it, or the television, or whatever it is. So the question is if, you know, it's really possible in this lifetime to uh, be free. Or as the army likes to say, which I love, I mean, I don't know who did this for them, what Madison Avenue uh, Corporation did this with them, but uh, to be all you can be? How'd the army get that one? You know, it's like, <laughs> It's marvelous. But if that's going to be possible in this lifetime, how, how would we do that? So I'm suggesting that the way we do it is to uh, assume that in some way or other, it's possible for us to come to our senses in every meaning of that term. Literally would be enormous. To just cultivate the capacity to see what is here to be seen. And we can start very, very simply. Because very often, like, you can live with somebody and never see them. You can see, not see your children, even though they're in the house. You see what you want to see, or you see your concept of your daughter or your son, or the history, the story of what, what they were, what they did, or who, who did what to whom, and in any moment, and then we kind of lose sight. We have that phrase in English, that just occurred to me, you know, we, we lose sight of something. Is this making any sense to you? So it's kind of a yoga, it's a practice, it's a meditation practice to actually intentionally say, start attending to seeing. Start attending to seeing. When you do that, you'll begin to notice things that you never noticed before. Shadows, for instance, maybe. Or shading or light, almost as if you were an artist and you begin to, if you had to draw something, you'd see it in a totally different way from the, if you're just like, oh, nice landscape. You'll be on the lookout for reflections in windows and windshields and stuff like that. There are all sorts of interesting things going on in our environment that we completely tune out all the time, but that when you actually see, I mean, it's like, you know, uh, we have the same eyes that Monet has. And that's just the eyes. 
than 30 years. You know, when you're really absorbed in something, somebody can say something to you and you don't hear it at all. Have you had that experience? You don't hear it at all. Or if it's something that negative, that about like, you know, something you're supposed to do, uh, you might not hear that the first few times that it gets said. But have somebody whisper your name in a conversation with a certain kind of energy across the room where there are a hundred people talking and, oh, they're talking about me. My favorite subject. Fantastic. <laughs> You'll know. Has that been your experience or not? It's kind of like the detector is set on a different kind of gain depending on, in many ways, what you hope to gain <laughs> or how awake you are and how much you want something or other to happen. And what I'm suggesting is that maybe it's possible to to actually get out of our own ways by giving up wanting something to happen, which is really just a product of more thinking, and instead marvel at what's already happening. on every level, including just the body. And I'm not talking in a way that's like, you know, narcissistic, oh, like, wonderful, love, you know, or the opposite, can't stand my body, you know, so reactive, clinging to it, or the concepts of it, or the form of it, or, and whatever it is, or pushing it away, you know, abhorrent, disgusting, uh, you know, just all of the kind of negativity. I mean, the level of stuff we carry just around our own body, just the way it looks, never mind how, it, how it's working, how it's functioning, just the way it looks. I mean, you know, if we just took the cosmetic industry budget and put it to work, Uh, for children, say, or for the homeless. Maybe, you know. But the cosmetic industry is just a reflection of our own minds. It's astonishing to me. I was on the subway and, you know, there's like all these bud to get here and all these bud light commercials. And it's just like, I haven't been on the New York subway in a, in a while, so forgive me if I'm a little off on this, but you know, I couldn't catch a cab to come here, so I got in the subway. And, and uh, I was just blown away by the, sen the sensory assault on the nervous system. Just, I'm talking just the posters in the, in the subway cars. I mean, the amount of cleavage, uh, the, 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 the amount of in-your-face beer drinking, you know, I don't even know what the messages are, but they're, they're not just what they appear to be. It's really interesting. When we, uh, you know, the whole domain of fragrance, the whole domain of smells and odors, and it's like a whole universe that that very often we just like tune out. Tastes, very often we, our relationship to food and 
indirectly to the body. You know, there's a close relationship there between food and the body. Fragrance, too, because the fragrance comes in on the air. Okay? And we have to take in the air. Nobody is interested in watching their breath. You know, it's like, why? It's so boring to watch the breath. But if you can't get this one breath, it's not going to take you very long before that's the only thing in the entire universe that is of any interest to you. You choke on a piece of meat or something like that or get pushed underwater and can't get up, out. And the breath all of a sudden becomes exquisitely interesting. But when we meditate, it's like, oh, another breath, please. Can't we do something more interesting than the breath? No. <laughs> we actually can't. There's nothing more interesting than, breath, than the breath. And, you know, and if, you know how, how many of you have been meditating for more than 20 years? Just raise your hands. No, oh, that's interesting. Not that many. Um, if you meditate for a long time, you come to realize that you've never seen two of the same breath. Never. You know how they say that uh, the, uh, I don't know if this is true or not, but it's a cliche. It may, be, may not be true at all, but that the Eskimos have like, uh, you know, a hundred words for snow. And the forest people in the Amazon have like a hundred or five hundred words for green or for verdure. Well, you know, that's because there's so many subtle dimensions of it to be known, to be felt. I mean, you know, there's a lot of different ways that snow can manifest. And if you live in the land of snow, if you live in Greenland or something like that, or, you know, northern Canada, you have to have a way of talking about all these different ways that snow is. Well, when you pay a lot of attention to the breath, you realize, like, every breath is actually amazingly unique. Every moment is amazingly unique. And they go by, and they go by, and they go by. And then pretty soon, you look in the mirror and you say, how the fuck did this happen? <laughs> Excuse my language here, but I'm trying to sort of um, connect to kind of those, those moments when we really are befuddled and bewildered at the fact that somehow or other, it's happened that we once were this way and now we're that way. And we preferred it. Which way? The this way. <laughs> the earlier way. You know? I mean, because there's this inevitability that the Buddha actually made a note in his lab notebook. Old age, sickness, and death. Imp important to make inquiry into. That was what energized him to actually not become the prince and the king of the kingdom, but to actually inquire into the nature of suffering and whether there was some way out of the inevitable tra trajectory that, from a kind of humorful point of view, is usually spoken of as life being a sexually transmitted disease with a terminal prognosis. 
and so why don't we all just get depressed? To me, it's like life is one hell of a mystery and one hell of an adventure. And why are we already so depressed? <laughs> you know, when it's continually presenting us with these amazing opportunities to actually wake up and be present and not so much worry about what has been or what is to come, but actually uh, be fully alive in the moments that we actually have. Why we have them? Because we know that the meter is running. And to me, there's nothing pessimistic or, uh, or um, despair generating around that. This is like, okay, okay. How might I live my life so that, as Thoreau said, when I come to die, I don't realize that I hadn't lived. How do I live that way? And, and I think that uh, we actually all know the, in our own ways, the, the on an gut, intuitive, non-conceptual level, we all already know how to do that. Only a lot of the time we get so busy or so driven or so much in need to accomplish or just to get through our to-do list for the day that we forget about who's doing the doing. about the whole domain of being. And so we forget that we already know. And so mindfulness or meditation practice is continually reminding ourselves and re, I like to say rebodying ourselves moment by moment by moment to actually be present for the only time in which we're ever alive. And then if only six things are happening, maybe we might start paying attention to those six things as if our life depended on it. You don't need to be a Buddhist to do that. I don't consider myself to be a Buddhist, uh, in case anybody wanted to know, you know. But I do consider myself to be, a lot, a lot of people project onto me that, that I am. I mean, I. You know, I get introduced as being a Buddhist all the time. People don't ask me. They just say, uh, and the Buddhist teacher, John Kabat-Zinn, you know, I'm not a Buddhist. Where did you get that? I used to think I was a Buddhist. That's true. <laughs> you know, I have burns on my arm when I thought I was, you know, becoming a Zen this or that. And, you know, that was part of the ritual was to let incense burn, cones of incense burn down into your skin, uh, you know, while you're chanting the Heart Sutra, and, you know, and, uh, but but I came to the point where, you know, sort of being involved with Buddhism and Buddhist teachers for a long time, of, of sort of coming to the point where I felt like uh, I wasn't interested in the part of me that wanted to identify myself as a Buddhist. That I'd rather sort of just be a human being 
but that's not any measure of disrespect for Buddhism. It's just that if you understand anything about Buddhism, it's about non-dual apprehension, realization. So if you make Buddhists, they have to be non-Buddhists, and you've already got duality. You know, if you're attached to Buddhist, non-Buddhist. If you're not attached to it, then it doesn't matter. But then, from my own personal perspective, why attach to it? Uh, I, I like to think of uh, the Buddha as, as a, a genius scientist who, because he lived 2,500 years ago, 2,600 years ago, really had no instruments at his disposal to study the nature of the mind and the nature of suffering other than his own mind. And, and so he used what he had in a very, very powerful way. And the first thing that he noticed was that if you want to use the mind as an instrument to look deeply into itself, well, if you start to pay attention to the mind, I don't have to tell you, I mean, within 30 seconds, you can establish very quickly that the mind is kind of unstable. It's all over the place. Uh, did you notice that when we were doing the meditation practice, that your mind went off here and there? It wasn't necessarily resting in awareness, even though I kept saying rest in awareness. Anybody have that experience? The mind wandered? Raise your hands. Hi, if you look around, too, okay? Because it's, it's, it's a, a, we're taking a reading on more than just our own mind. Everybody's mind wanders. Why? Because it's in the nature of the mind to wander. But if you say we're... Uh, wanting to use the mind as an instrument to penetrate beneath the surface of its own activity, you would have to refine the instrument before you could actually make the observations just the way, say, if you have a telescope and you want to look at the moon, and if it's on a wobbly platform, you're not going to be able to see the moon or focus on the moon, no less some distant quasar or something like that. So the first thing you have to do is establish a, a stable platform. And we do that by cultivating intimacy with how it is for us in the mind from moment. And I don't make a distinction between the mind and the body, but from moment to moment, or at least not some kind of, uh, sort of enduring or firm distinction between mind and body, but from moment to moment, uh, how to um, stabilize them long enough so that we can like know anything or remember anything because as soon as we know it and we get distracted into something else, we forget. Have you noticed that? So if you start to pay attention to how much the mind is fluctuating and waving around all the time and wanting this and not wanting that and liking this and not liking that and insisting that it be a certain way and then you'll be happy or whatever it is that is coming up in the mind and that we get caught up in and then we'll really fight 
with ourselves over or with other people, but we can actually get quite violent, even unkind, ungenerous with ourselves around these kinds of issues and tensions and why can't you be a certain way, speaking to ourselves a certain way and you're a this and you're a that and we sort of call ourselves names and, you know, just label ourselves in unkind ways, hurtful ways and then think it's true. As a, but when you start to recognize that these are just like the mind waving, just like the ocean waves, it's just kind of like what minds do. And they do it rather mindlessly, without this sort of paying attention to the quality of attention itself and to the quality of the statements that the mind comes up with. So that, you know, we make these statements and they're only true to a degree. They're not absolutely true, but usually we believe that our thoughts are absolutely true. And so those are the lenses through which we see things. We think, you know, if you think, just to take one political example, I don't want to get into a huge political conversation. I got into a huge political conversation the last time I was on this stage. <laughs> um, but if you just take one thing, for instance, okay? A statement of truth. Okay. Uh, the Americans are the liberators of Iraq. Okay. Statement. Okay. It's like a thought. Okay. True or not true? Here's the counterpart. The Americans are the oppressors in Iraq. True or not true? Well, doesn't it depend on who you talk to? Or might they both be true, but to a degree, differing degrees and to different extents, and depending on which tube you look down, which lens you look down? But if we get all agitated about it, then the telescope is jumping around and we can't maybe even really focus on like, what the hell is going on? And everybody's attached to this particular view or that particular view. And, and of course, attachment gets bigger when you have like $87 billion in the pipeline. I'm just using that as an example, though, because if we're talking about coming to our senses at the level of not only the body, but the body politic, then we just have to really understand what the fundamental act is of coming to our senses, the act of waking up to how much we identify with particular thoughts as true when they are only true to a degree, or particular perceptions as true when they are only true to a degree. But we create or reify them into some kind of established reality, and then that's kind of the straitjacket that we saddle ourselves with. So if we begin to stabilize the mind and see, oh yeah, it can get bent out of shape this way, it can get bent out of shape that way, but we rest in an awareness that knows when it gets bent out of shape this way and gets bent out of shape that way. And how does it know that? It knows it by practicing being intimate with stuff we almost never pay any attention to whatsoever. And the breath, you know, is not the only game in town, but when you start to pay attention to the breath, one of the things you notice right away is can't even do that. I mean, that's the simplest thing to do. Can't even do that. Why? Well, because thoughts intrude. Or my back starts to hurt after a while. I can't just sit still. And so there are all these ways in which the platform that we need to use to sort of 
perceive the moon or perceive anything through our six ways of perceiving is so chaotic, so unstable, so all over the place that, you know, it's amazing we can put our pants on in the morning and go to work. <laughs> and of course we do, and we function amazingly beautifully. So this is not some kind of terminal put-down of human beings. And I'm trying to just sort of, um, I don't know, um, dramatize the situation a little bit because we so easily miss it, mistake it, and just don't see the lenses through which we are seeing, and therefore misperceive, misapprehend, and then misspeak or misact or misdon't act because we're lost. But if we learn how to actually let the waving wave, see, we don't have to fix anything. In fact, it's not about fixing. If we let the waving wave, however it is, whether it has to do with my back or my legs or my age or, or my ideas and opinions or all of the things that have not worked out for me in this life or all of the possibilities that I'm tremendously excited about, but if with all of that waving, we can rest in an awareness that watches the waves, that knows the waves, that sees the, the healthy waves that probably, yeah, that would be a, probably a good, a wholesome way to move, okay, in a direction like that. And this, on the other hand, <clears throat> desire to commit murder, probably not a wholesome way to move even though you may be completely justified in that feeling. You may be enraged, and for every good reason in the world, probably not a skillful thing to do in the order of things. And okay, so if we come to learn to recognize what's actually going on, maybe we, right here in this moment, without having to become a Buddhist, without having to meditate for a thousand years, without having to move to Japan or Tibet or Taiwan or Korea or whatever, or even go to some of the great meditation centers in this country, and we have them now. We didn't have them 30 years ago. Maybe it'd be possible right in this moment, right in this moment, to wake up to this moment. No guarantees about the next moment. But, except for one thing, and you've probably noticed that in your meditation practice and in your life, that if you are in touch with this moment, does that or does that not influence the quality of the next moment? Just think about relationships or crossing the street. If you're in touch with this moment, it influences the quality of the next infinitesimally small mo arising moment, which in turn, if you sustain the attending, influences the next moment, influences the next moment. Therefore, if you want to influence the future, and I would bet, put money on the fact that every single one of us in this room wants to influence the future, even if it's just weight loss. 
or making New Year's resolutions about how you're going to really exercise this year, or stop smoking, or, or be kinder, or whatever it is, some other time, you know? But you've got big plans for it. The only way we can make the future remotely resemble what it is that we would care about would be to take care of this moment as if it really mattered, as if your life depended on it. And it requires that kind of intentionality, not to berate yourself or beat yourself up or get pious and serious. Now I gotta meditate, John said, I gotta meditate all the time and you know, as if my it really mattered, you know. No, I'm not talking about it that way at all. It's more like, well, what else is there to do? What else is there to do, actually? If we're not present in this moment with our life as it is, then what's that going to do to the next moment, or tomorrow, or six months down the road, if we add up, sum over all of the moments that we're really out to lunch someplace else, fantasizing about how much we're going to change, or change the world? get my drift. That's what I'm calling coming to our senses. So, uh, I would actually like to invite you to uh, participate in a dialogue and uh, respond to what I've said or to the practice period that we had before, where we sat together, uh, to reflect perhaps on why you came here in this snowstorm in the first place? I mean, really why you came. And it's just wide open, anything's okay, you know? And, 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 and I just say in advance that I'm, uh, not interested in testimonials, okay? You could say, I hate meditation, it bores me to tears, I can't stand it, you know, you Buddhists and non-Buddhists, and you know, whatever it is that you want to say, it's okay to say it, okay? Because I'm inviting you to be real and to really inquire as to what the hell you're doing here. I mean, this is a, a radical act to come out on, uh, in a snowstorm on a Friday night. It is. I mean, I don't mean to sort of, I'm not talking about sort of uh, inflating myself. I mean, it's not like you came out to see me in a way, but it's a radical act to come to an evening about meditation, about mindfulness. It's a, it's a damn radical act. It's a radical act of love, as far as I'm concerned, the same as taking your seat to meditate. And so I'm interested in what, what you are here for, what you want to know, what do you think you don't already know, that kind of thing. And I think there are microphones that can be passed around. Is that true or not true? So that we can actually all hear, because I don't want to repeat it 
Is there another microphone that could be passed around? Otherwise, guess what? I'm going to invite you to come up and share this microphone. Uh, and, and that will give you an opportunity to turn around and actually see who's in the room, at least. And, and also, maybe experience some fluttering or palpitations or anxiety or stress or whatever. You know, people say that there have been studies that show that when you just stand up in front of a room of people, you don't even need to open your mouth. Blood pressure goes up about 20 points. But since, you know, we're all really mindful and, you know, and mindfulness can be applied to even that kind of arising inside the body, uh, no problem, you know, it's just all part of the practice. So I invite you to come and ask questions. Or if you have a really, it's not that big a hall, and if you have a voice that can project, please, uh, you know, speak from where you are. But don't be shy about coming up here, and I'm happy to share the stage. getting caught in the pain of it all. You are with the pain and also transparent to it. That doesn't mean that you lose empathy or compassion, but the awareness itself is free from getting caught or can free itself again, and so it becomes a practice how, how quickly can I see how quickly I'm caught and disengage from the, the way that I'm caught, which usually creates a feeling story in the mind or a thought story in the mind, and then that's probably what drags us down. And that's probably what makes us vulnerable. But the bare actuality of the sensory experience, and then there's another moment, which is very, very important, that the Buddha emphasized hugely, and that is that at the point of contact in the moment with a perception, whether it's coming through any of the six doors that we're talking about, sense doors, including mine, that there is an immediate kind of evaluation of the, not an evaluation, a knowing of the experiences, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Fundamental, right at that point of contact. See, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, here, 
pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Taste, unpleasant, pleasant, neutral. The neutral, we usually don't see at all, hear at all. It's like, and that, you can get really good on the subway of being so neutral, you just don't even see the people in the car. And I know that in New York City, you have to be very careful how you see people. <laughs> you don't just sit and smile in the subway, for instance. I mean, you know, and it also partly depends on what time of the day or night you're talking about. So there are a lot of nuances to this, but nevertheless, it's like just can you be with things as they actually are? And since you came here tonight, I'm guessing that there was, there's something around this uh, whole domain that is precious to you. I hope I'm not exaggerating. That on some level is precious to you, even though you may sort of think you have a casual relationship to it. And so the suggestion would be to just let the interface between the exterior, apparently exterior landscape, and the interior landscape, let them talk to each other, and you listen in as if you were different. <laughs> and see, hear, feel, taste, smell what's here to be learned. And then that's what learning comes out of. That's what apprehension means. It's like comprehension comes from apprehension as we really attend, but without the usual lenses, that filter. That's, that's, a, that's like, you know, you talk about, you know, New Yorkers going to Jiva Mukti and, you know, Om Yoga and all that. This is a very worthy yoga. And it's hard. I don't mean to suggest that it's easy. And I think every person that's showed up in this room knows that we're not talking about something that's that easy. In fact, I would say that what we're talking about is the hardest thing in the world. And the only reason to... to give oneself over to it is, again, what I said before, what else is there to do? If you're not actually mindful in relationships, how long do you think your relationships are going to last in a way that is satisfactory? And by mindful, I got to remind us all that I don't necessarily just mean mindful, I mean heartful. The word for mind and heart in all or East Asian languages is the same. Does that answer your question? Okay, thank you. Yeah. Would you stand up and try to project or come up here? Did everybody hear the question? Okay, so the qu Okay. So that I don't have to repeat the questions in the future, could, could you actually come up here and, and speak in the microphone? But I will repeat this question. Uh, the person who asked the question said that she heard recently a psychologist, a prominent psychologist on the radio, make the statement that meditation is really good for people with anxiety and who are anxious and time pressure and all of that stuff, but not so good for people with depression because they really need more activity. Is that fair reading of it? Um, well, it's true to a degree. <laughs> um, 
First of all, I think it's interesting that a prominent psychologist would say that meditation is really good for people with anxiety and panic, because 20 years ago, no prominent psychologist would have said anything bordering on that. So the world has really changed, and meditation is becoming really recognized as an extremely powerful and valuable path for people who are uh, the clients of the healthcare system, medical system, psych psychology and psychotherapy and so forth, for actually taking charge or seizing hold or in some way or other coming to terms with and healing in their own lives. That's already huge. And the fact that he's not willing to throw depression into the mix, well, in part, he doesn't know what's going on in the field of depression. But, uh, and in part, he's right, because when you are in the deepest, darkest despairs of depression and caught up in it, uh, that's not exactly the time to uh, take on a meditation practice. But of course, there are many moments for many, many different people where it's not the appropriate time. Take somebody who's just been diagnosed with breast cancer, for instance, and this is something we had to work out in the medical center because, you know, the surgeons got all excited in the breast clinic about how they want to send people to our stress reduction clinic where they would learn to meditate. So when do you think they decided to tell the women that they should do stress reduction? The same time they told them the diagnosis. Can you believe that? It's true. So the, one has to really understand the landscape that you are working in, whether you're talking about depressive illness or whether you're talking about cancer and its trajectory in the life of a human being or, or anything else. And so it's not so much that you could make a blanket statement, meditation's good for this, but it's not good for that. But how will it be introduced? When will it be introduced? Under what kind of sort of holding pattern to hold it so that it makes sense to people? I mean, the way I talked about it when I set up the stress reduction clinic 24 years ago was like, you know, I realized there are thousands of ways to take the greatest meditation practices in the world and bring them into medicine in a way that would not be effectual, effective at all. I mean, there are thousands of different ways to fail with the greatest stuff on earth. There are very few ways to do it that would actually succeed. And so you have to create in some way or collaborate with the universe to create the conditions where people can actually hear something as radical as the power of actually non-doing, of stopping, looking, listening, attending in the face of cancer, intense chronic pain, old age, sickness, death, what, 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 misery, stress, pain, illness. See what I'm saying? I mean, it's not like meditation one size fits all or you know anything like that. I mean there are a lot of different forms of meditation and uh, but in terms of depression just to finish that question um, I have some colleagues who spent actually years working with us at the Center for Mindfulness although they are in England and in uh, Wales and uh, Toronto uh, who whose specialty was cognitive therapy for depression, and who somehow or other got this idea from their 
theoretical understanding of how the mind falls into rumination and depressive rumination and spirals down and then keeps you down so that one sort of sad event or even one sad thought can catapult you into a, a, a sort of a, a dark labyrinth that, you know, might take you six months or a year to get out of, that kind of depression, where, of course, you're not going to go to the hospital to a stress reduction clinic once a week uh, in that state. And what they found was that they take people who have had multiple episodes of chronic depression of that kind, and they, those people are treated with drugs. They have some very powerful antidepressants, as you know, and, and very often they will ultimately come out of their depression because of the drug treatment. But they are at unbelievably high risk. Now, they're not depressed anymore, but they're at unbelievably high risk for spiraling back into depression, okay? And that's called relapsing. And it's like a huge and it's very, very costly problem in medicine because depression is so prevalent and anxiety is also so prevalent in our society that it's billions and billions of dollars a cost. And so it becomes really important for these, you know, for psychologists to ask, are there ways to reduce the relapse rates of people who've been treated with antidepressants for depression. And they got in their mind that somehow mindfulness might be useful because it would have to do with what they call decentering, stepping back from your internal ruminations and being able to see them more clearly. And that the cognitive therapy that they're involved in really has to do with judging the thoughts, labeling them as desirable, undesirable, changing one thought into a, a negative thought into a positive thought, things like that. And very often, while that can be of some use, somehow they intuited that mindfulness, because it's about non-judgmental attending to all thought without sort of trying to switch one thought for another, but resting in an awareness that's not caught in the content of the thought or the emotional charge of the thought, they had this idea of maybe mindfulness would be good. So that, you know what they wanted to do? They wanted to get my tapes from the stress reduction clinic, give it to their patients, and uh, then see what happened when they weren't depressed. And I said, well, you can't do that. First of all, you don't even know what's on the tapes yourself. You, if you want to introduce mindfulness to your patients, I got news for you folks. Guys, you got to meditate. They thought I was nuts. So they went ahead and did it anyway and set up what they, you know, eventually became mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. It's a new field, and it's all the rage now in cognitive therapy circles. I just went to a huge meeting in Boston of the Association for the Advancement of Behavior Therapy, and it was like mindfulness, 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 mindfulness throughout the program. I mean, it was like amazing. Everybody's talking about mindfulness. I went there in 1986 and presented a paper on mindfulness and like, Never heard of it. So now, all of a sudden, there's a feeding frenzy around mindfulness, but they actually got funding from the MacArthur Foundation and from uh, the National Institutes of Mental Health, the NIMH, and they did a three-country randomized trial of people who were not depressed but had had multiple episodes of depression, and they treated them with an eight-week mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, which is 90% mindfulness-based stress reduction, what we do at the clinic, but modulated through their cognitive therapy lenses and so forth, uh, and all four people with depression, but who'd been 
treated with antidepressants. And what they found was that the relapse rate, which is usually 60% relapse, they halved it to 30%. And they did it twice. They replicated the study a second time. And this is, and, and getting that kind of a result, it's like, well, too bad they didn't get it to zero. Yeah, but I mean, in the real world, it doesn't happen all that way. Uh, so a 50% reduction in relapse rate with an eight-week intervention that may actually last a lifetime, that's very cost-effective, rather than being on drugs the whole time, which has its own problems, or having to be an individual psychotherapy, because you can work with 20 people at a time instead of one person at a time. It's much more cost-effective. So they wrote a book called Mindfulness-Based Cognitive Therapy for Depression. And just yesterday, I was over across the street at the Beth Israel Hospital giving psychiatry grand rounds. And there are people over there who are doing research on mindfulness and who are training the clinicians, their psychiatrists, in mindfulness, not just about depression, but like, duh. It might be valuable for the physicians to be present in the room with the patients when they are anyway. And they're actually training them to be present because, <laughs> you know, as all of us know who have gone to the doctor, it's very easy for them to get distracted or, you know, to sort of not give you their full attention. And that's really iatrogenic. It's like malpractice for the physician to not be there. I mean, you only see him for 30 seconds anyway, but for those 30 seconds, she should be there. So thank you for that question. To get stuff. To get not depressed, right. to get non-anxious, or to get whatever it is you're getting. Doesn't that kind of conflict with the concept of mindfulness, which is not to be grasping, not to be clinging, not to be just to be there without intent? Thank you so much for that question. Thank you so much. The answer is it depends. If you're teaching it as, as a, a way to get stuff, a way to get better, a way to get less depressed, a way to get less anxious, a way to get healthier, if you're actually teaching it that way, uh, then uh, yeah, it might actually be undermining the entire wisdom dimension that mindfulness has. And that's my huge fear, that as mindfulness, as we get this sort of feeding frenzy in psychology and medicine now, like everybody is interested in mindfulness all of a sudden, that that's exactly what happened, that they'll go up half-cocked and not, you know, log the uh, hours on the cushion <laughs> that are required to cultivate the intimacy that we've been talking about this evening. But they'll just kind of use it as kind of a pill. Just pay attention, let go. You know, we can just pick out the cliches, you know. Let's see, I went to one of those workshops and... Yeah, Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.